This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Corvus Rising, Book One, The Patois Heresy. And Mary C. Simmons is the author, and she joins us now on iUniverse. Hello, Mary. Hello. I'm pleased to be here. Well, great to have you with us. This is quite a fantasy, and as a fantasy... It stretches uh, the imagination, and we'll talk about the details, but let me just read a couple of things you've written. You say, Corvus Rising is a fantasy tale about the Corvids, a highly intelligent family of birds, including crows and ravens, and the unique yet near-extinct race of humans known as the Patois, who can speak their language. The Corvids hope that one of the last of the Patois will help them save their forests from destruction by humans building cities and factories, though admittedly the Corvids profit greatly from the largesse of our wasteful species. So it obviously has a uh, theme in here. Of uh, What would be the theme? Would you sum up? What would you say? Well, it certainly is an environmental theme. Uh, it touches on, or actually more than touches on, the struggle between the advocates for wilderness and advocates for progress and building of human civilizations. So it really does take place right at that crossing point. You know, we obviously have needs to, to build things on the earth for us to live in and get around in and, and grow our food which a lot of times is in direct opposition to the way the rest of the animals are living their lives on Earth. And I think that we have caused a great deal of destruction over some of our our habits. And I think a lot of it is that we are just really not very aware of our impact. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote this book in a fictional sort of way that would help to you know teach us all that we need to to act and live more in concert with the creatures on the Earth than as owners of them. Give us a little bit about your background. Well, my educational background is in geology. I have a master's degree, and I taught geology at a couple of universities, one in Indiana and one in New Mexico. Um, I have a son who lives in Brooklyn, and I have spent a, a large amount of my time outside of geology doing various forms of artwork, um, mostly pottery. I've been doing that for a couple of decades, and it kept my interest all this time because there is such a great interaction between pottery and rocks. Um, that's where it all comes from. Um, I started writing Corvus Rising a few years ago. This is my first fictional uh, writing. I've written a few things in the scientific world that have relate, related to my geology background, but this is my first step into fiction. So tell us about this mysterious island. Well, I made up the island, and it, it loosely refers to an island that I once crossed over in the Mississippi River that divides Minneapolis in two. 
but the the uh, resemblance doesn't carry through any further than that. I envisioned an island uh, that on one end represented the ways of knowing things scientifically and empirically, which is about the only way that we respect anymore any kind of knowledge or intelligence. And at the other end of the island is going to represent the more intuitive and and uh, other ways of knowing that we receive from dreams and fictional writings and poetry. And both of these ways of knowing will help us to live better lives on Earth in concert with the Earth as opposed to against it, which I believe that if we are only going to be thinking scientifically and mechanically, that it just leads us into where we look at the Earth and its animals as objects that are here for our use. So this island is uninhabited, except it has this very uh, unique blue-eyed crows and ravens. Yes, and the only thing really that makes them unique is their blue eyes. A lot of birds, like human babies, are born with blue eyes, and they turn brown or black as as the crows and ravens get older. But on this island, I made them keep their blue eyes, which is going to have to do with that they do live on the island. That is why they have they they maintain their blue eyes. Um, otherwise, there isn't anything special about them because they can talk to the patois, the humans who can speak their language. So it's special more, what is more special really is the group of humans that can speak to these crows. Now we're, what's the origins of the patois? The patois have been around since the beginning of, of the human race, that they, and, and also have been friends of the crows and ravens since then. And they have been the, the gardeners, the farmers. They're a very gentle race of, of humans that has always known how to communicate with the crows. And over the millennia have suffered from various persecutions and reductions in numbers through because of a variety of things, which I will get more into in the second book. But there's just a scant few left in the 21st century, and one of them, the main character in the story, uh, happens to just stumble on this island. He gets a job teaching about birds at a university in the, the city that this island or the river that the island is in cuts through. And so he discovers this island quite by accident. And he has been talking to crows since he was a child, but he thought that he was a freak. He didn't know that there was anybody else on earth that did that. And so he's been, he spent his life hiding it and hiding from other humans so that they don't discover this terrible secret about him. So we have this outcast Jesuit scholar. That is him. Alfredo? Alfredo. Yes, Alfredo Monzi. He's, the, the, he's a, a noted ornithologist who got his job teaching at the university there and um, comes to live on the island. And then he meets Charlie. Yes, Charlie the blue-eyed crow, uh, who's kind of the first spokesman of, of the island. And it's through Charlie that he you know, learns to his great discomfort that uh, the crows don't regard that the Jesuits or anybody else owns this island. The island owns itself. All of Earth owns itself. We don't own anything. And so they have as much right there as humans. At least as much, yes. And since they've been there first, and there was some discussion among the crows and ravens about really, really, Charlie owns the island because his family has lived on it for, for hundreds of years. 
So he has a greater claim than anybody, but animals don't look at the land like we do. Nobody owns it. They have their territories, but they don't own it. But there's a human land developer that looks at the island with uh, dollar signs. Oh, yes. He wants to build a, a casino resort on the island, and he's got a couple of paddle boats that are like the old Delta Queen that used to go up and down the Mississippi River, and going to turn that into the actual casino and cut all the trees down, get rid of the crows, put up shopping malls and recreational parks and movie theaters. It's going to be just this big recreational park for the city, and everything else is going to be gone, the wilderness, the crows, everything. So Alfredo has a mission. He has a mission uh, to help that not happen, because he comes to the island and he discovers that he is not the first Patois to have ever visited, that there was an, a hermit of the, from the 1800s that came to live there. He lived there his whole life, and he built this extraordinary little chapel on the island. So he discovers through talking with Charlie that he's not the only Patois or the first Patois that has ever visited the island, that there is this heritage of, of a former uh, Patois who was also a Jesuit. And so there's going to be a, a connection with the Jesuit order and the Patois and the talking crows, but that'll come more in, in the second book than, than it is existing now in the first. But there are but there is this banding together to save this this island. Yes. Now the Alfredo is going to he will discover a couple of more patois in the first book, in the story. And you know, like I said earlier, he finds out that he's not a freak, that there are others like him. And it's really the the a very small handful of humans bands together with a large amount of crows and a whole lot of other birds to beat back the development um, by this developer from the city who is using eminent domain laws to get the island condemned so that he can buy it and turn it into his gambling casino. So this eminent domain law... uh comes from a real Supreme Court case? Yes. In 1980, um, I think it was 1980, it was a Supreme Court decision called Kelo, that's K-E-L-O, versus the city of New London, which is in Connecticut. And what happened there was Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, wanted to build a manufacturing facility, but they had to get the, the land that they wanted it condemned and the people removed from it before they could do it. And they campaigned to the city of New London that, and it, and it did go to the Supreme Court, that what they were planning to do was going to be an economic boon to the city of New London, that it would bring in a lot of dollars and economic revenue through taxes, and it would also bring in a lot of jobs. And therefore, that it should be considered um, under the, the, for the public good, which is the only way that city governments or, or governments at all have ever condemned property, was to build a, a highway or a hospital or something that the public would use. And so Pfizer managed to convince the Supreme Court that if you make all these people leave their houses and you raise them and you build a manufacturing facility, that this will be for the public good. And the Supreme Court agreed with them. And they were even, I mean, it was, it was a really interesting decision because even the, everybody was pretty horrified at the way that the, the decision came out. No matter which side of the political spectrum you were on, it was, everyone was aghast that the government can just take your property so that some developer can build something on it. 
Well, what's really horrible about the Pfizer thing was that they never built it. Mm. They never built it. So I use that as my as in my story to call attention to, really, that's the public good where a developer comes in and convinces a local government that a lot of jobs and, and tax revenue is for the public good, and that would be a good reason to to steal somebody's private property. Why did you use crows and ravens to tell your story? I mean, there's a lot of other types of birds. I think because because they are most like us. You know, I knew before I ever started writing this book that they were highly intelligent birds and that what interested me the most perhaps about them was that all of the cultures pretty much in the entire world from the very beginnings have stories about crows and ravens interacting with humans. In the Pacific Northwest, Raven brought light to the world. In lots of the myths, Crow and Raven created the world. So what I think, and, and of course as a geologist, I looked up how long have Crows and Ravens been here. Well, the, the oldest Corvid fossil that we know of is somewhere around 20 million years old. Well, we know that humans haven't been here that long, so I suspect that when the, the humans arrived, however anybody wants to look at that, the Crows and Ravens had already been here and they're really smart really smart, and I think they really did trick the, the early humans in stealing their food and, and whatnot, and then they became friends with them. I think we've had this, this friendship with these birds since the beginning, but over time there's been things that have caused a lot of people to regard them as, as the messengers of death, and I think that comes about from what crows eat. They eat dead things in the landscape, and thank goodness they do. And so I suspect that a lot of the the dislike or the discomfort about crows and ravens came from things like scenes of like for instance during the one the bubonic plague that raged across Europe that killed just millions of people that there would be these crows and ravens that were just at these piles of bodies just eating them. So I think that that might have something to do with it. But but I also suspect that it's really because they are so much like us that that they make us uncomfortable. We've been listening to Mary C. Simmons. She is the author of her book, Corvus Rising, Book One, The Patois Heresy. Mary, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can buy it from my publisher, iUniverse, on iUniverse.com and go to their bookstore and find me. It's also available on Amazon.com. In, in, and in both places, um, it's available as hardcover, paperback, and ebook. You can also get it on Barnes and Noble's website. Um, Google Reads has it. Um, pretty much if you just Google Corvus Rising, you will find it. Thank you so much, Mary, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It was my pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, 
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. And the author is Martin Mazzora, and Marty joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marty. Hello, Steve. Well, you're going to teach us a lot about economics, real Basic, down-to-earth, you can't spend more than you take in kind of economics, which I don't know, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of people understand that in the, in the capital cities of this, of this nation as well as in Washington. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree, and, and, uh, and, it, and it doesn't seem to be rocket science either. No, Steve, but, th- there you go. Yeah. It's not rocket science. It's one and one makes two. <laughs> so, so you know, you, you've come out with this uh, very different styled book to help us to think through the benefits of the free market system and the absolute destruction by overspending by government. Is that the kind of the bottom line? Yeah, I think so. The overspending, the um, the cronyism that exists between government and and often big business and. And yeah, just just kind of how things are presented to us day in and day out through the media, et cetera. Well, tell us a little bit about your background first, Marty, and then we'll get into some of the different uh, days of your book. It's broken up into 31 days, your book, so we'll talk about that. Okay, great. Um, Steve, I have been an investment consultant for the past 29 years, and the economy obviously has a great deal of impact on how we view portfolios, how we structure them, and uh, certain cycles or part of the cycles, whether we own bonds and what types of equities and so on. So I've had a, an intense interest in the economy throughout my entire working career, which has really led me to uh, a lot of study of global economics, a lot of study of economic history, and um, I've kind of come to this place that would be very much a free marketplace that um, the the less government intrudes upon our personal liberties, both personally and professionally or from a commerce standpoint, the better we seem to do um, as an economy, as a people, and, and in terms of growth, both domestically and globally. And so I uh, I wrote this book with that in mind. I actually write 
uh, a lot. So I, I have a blog site. I've been writing commentaries and and newsletters for years. I have one other previously published book, really just on investing. And uh, what this is is a collection of essays that uh, readers found, I think, pertinent and enjoyable. And my my aim is really to to reach out to people who would normally probably shrink from from a book about politics. And- so we have day one through day thirty one. Now, how long are these, and uh, how difficult are they to read and really understand? Yeah, and, that, and again, the idea is that it be very accessible, so not at all difficult, I believe. The uh, the whole book can be can be taken in, in inside of an hour, which was was my objective. But I, I did break it down into a daily devotional, 31. This is going to be volume one of what I suspect to be future, many future daily devotionals. And the idea, as I, as I just said, to, to really appeal to people who might not ordinarily look for this kind of, kind of stuff and without having to make a huge commitment to it. So if a, if a reader would consider this book, and again, free market thinking is what I'm trying to bring them to, uh, they don't have to commit months, and, and, and it's, uh, the, the idea of the design was to be very inviting. So when you look at it, it's, it's not intimidating like a lot of books are. So to give us a little sense of what these days are like, what, what are some of your favorite? Maybe, you know, I know you, we don't have enough time to read them in sure. entirety, but just to give right. us a sense of uh, some of these days that some of your favorites and, and uh, well, share the yeah. concepts. Okay. Okay. Well, um, you know, there's several. I I, uh, I like them. Like I like I suggested, I, I write a lot. So this is just 31 of a lot of stuff that I've written. But you know, the, the one that comes to mind probably uh, first would be day 30, and it's titled "Political Chicken." And I wrote this in December of 2012, and the subtitle below that says, "Your man in office got there by making all the right promises to all the right people." And Steve, what I essentially do there is is explain why, uh, if not impossible, it would be profoundly difficult for the kind of person who you would want to uh, to hold office to ever get there. And it's it's a brief essay about you know the what it takes to um, to allocate the right time and resources to the right people and to collect the resources that you'd need to, to effectively run a campaign and get elected. It's not a very optimistic view, by the way. Um, another one I like is actually the next one, Products of Our Environment, Day 31, was actually my sharing of a personal experience uh, that my, my oldest son had in college with an econ professor who was uh, very much um, guiding these uh, these young minds toward more of a Oh, a big government mindset, if you will. And then uh, on that same theme, coming back to my kids, my younger son, uh, one of my one of the ones that my readers really liked, I titled "Freshman Economics," where I talked about a, a conversation with my son and one of his buddies uh, on the way home from school one day when I picked them up, and it, it was the day after uh, the president had given, I believe it was a State of the Union address, and talked about. Uh, some jobs programs, and I and I appeal to these kids' common sense, and uh, it was just interesting how they came up with what I believe to be um, very smart thinking. But it was you know young minds and so on. My last uh, my last sentence there is so how is it that a couple of high school freshmen have better business sense than the authors of the president's jobs bill, as it clears the mind unpolluted by politics? So a lot. you can get a general idea of the theme there. 
A lot of news coming out of Europe. Countries are about ready to implode, uh, literally to go bankrupt. Are we going down that same road? Well, um, certainly I think we need to look look to Europe as an example of what happens uh, when the size of government grows beyond a certain point, when when this, this, this belief, unfortunately commonly held belief, that we don't have a problem as long as we can print. Um, yeah, I, I'd say that, that we have reason to be afraid of that, that scenario. Uh, Steve, what, what some very noted economists would tell you as to why we're, we're not headed in that direction is we have a different, perhaps a more dynamic economy. But again, um, here we are uh, coming off of the greatest recession since the Great Depression when his history would suggest coming from such a deep depression, we should be growing at probably two or three times the pace, and we're not. Um, but what is growing is the size of government at a very rapid pace. So I would say that we should be concerned about. The chief difference is that Europe no longer has these countries in the Eurozone can't, Greece can't print their way or inflate their way into other problems. I started to say inflate their way out of the problem. But um, long term, as, as we've experienced here, and I, I could go on and on about the tech bubble bursting and, and the Fed's um, response to that and then the, the subsequent real estate bubble and, and how that contributed to that. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, again, Steve, I, I do think that if we don't begin to turn direction, to turn, change directions at some point and we don't watch and see what's going on there and take it to heart, we, we do have those kinds of issues in our future. I don't think most Americans believe that and seem, most people yeah. seem to either be asleep or have their, you know, have the old head in the sand kind of yeah. syndrome. They don't want to deal with it. Now, you talked about government, of course, spending, and and in your day 18, you talk about this wonderful term. I've never been able to. Boy, what a great term they manufactured! Quantitative easing. But doesn't that yeah. sound just great? Sounds yeah, like boy, sure. that's a that's yeah. got to be an answer to a problem. Sure, you can quantify the dollar amount of what you're doing, at least up until the most current rounds. All they've quantified is the amount per month, which is $85 billion currently uh, of brand new. I want to say printed, Steve, but you and I know that's not yeah. how it works. So you just type right. some, some digits followed by zero, other digits with, that are zeros. Everything's digital now. balance sheets, and yeah. you, exactly, and you buy their bonds. Um, and, and rather than, than, than establishing a time frame and or a, a, a limit in terms of the dollar amount, now it's tied to 6.5% unemployment and 2.5% inflation, both of which we're not, we're not really that close to at this point. So the, the idea is that quantitative easing and, and or I've got to be careful not to confuse that just with interest rate policy as well, uh, but really, this this easy monetary policy will, won't let up until um, either or both of those two things occur. Well, and of course, we're reassured that this won't affect inflation. But boy, I go to the gas pump and I go to the grocery store. I'm sorry, but of course, they don't use those in the numbers, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. Those the, are what, two what? Quote, quote transient. I never quite understood that. I, I, that. Well, it's it's just yeah. a big lie. It's all that well, is. yeah, it's it's they they're su subject to so many different you know uh, variables, you know, <laughs> Middle East, whatever, when it comes to yeah. energy. But at the end of the day. 
the two things I'm going to spend money on mostly are what I eat and what my car eats, and that's you know that's food and energy. Um, yeah, and, and that's not. That, and you, you really you would think that would translate to other prices as well, but but you also have to understand that, and I've written about this on my blog recently that that what we don't we have the the creation of money, but we don't have what what economists call the velocity of money, meaning it's not really turning over in the economy. It's literally what the Fed is printing. Most of it is just sitting in excess reserves on bank balance sheets. And it's not really circulating. We get some traction, and this money begins to circulate. That's where we have, mm. I think, the real legitimate risks of inflation beyond just the food and energy. Right, and also even uh, percentages of inflation that are down, just downright scary. Absolutely. Right. Well, uh, let's go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just the last point there, but the Fed really believes or seems to, that they have the tools at their disposal to unwind that, essentially bring that liquidity back off out of the marketplace, which it's not, or off the bank balance sheets, just at the right time, you know, in just the right quantities. And I, uh, I am very much a skeptic of their ability. Well, history, doesn't, history does not prove them true. Not in the least. <laughs> history proves that what they're doing is going to completely, in the long run, destroy everything. But, it's going to, at a minimum, um, create some real bubbles in some in some specific areas. And again, that would be more recently the real estate bubble and burst that we just experienced. But these are, like you say, in day eleven, you got brains to burn. We got these super bright people, but they don't necessarily know what you know good policy is. It's just, yeah, you know, and I do that also in day thirty-one with my son's uh, econ professor. Um, yeah, there's. Uh, I, I and, and brains to burn actually is one of I should have mentioned that too. That's that's one that my readers just loved, and um, I talk about that very thing. How is it that really bright people with off the chart IQs um, can't seem to get it right? And I even when I talk about their IQs and I say, how can I even pretend to criticize an individual? whose intellect easily runs circles around mine. But then again, if academic prowess is all Washington needs to make sound financial policy, how is it we find ourselves facing, and it was, at the time, a $1.4-plus trillion budget deficit? And I said, come 2011, and I said, my business ain't running no deficit. So, right. yeah, yeah. And I can't remember who made this just the most profound statement the most illogical profound statement i have to i think it was vice president biden that he said something about spending our way out of debt or something like that i <laughs> yeah i don't know who that was he wouldn't be the only one over there that that uh, that has been a unfortunately a very um, common belief the idea is that we can we can through aggregate demand, which would just be people spending money. If we can, if government needs to spend to pick up the difference between what consumers aren't spending because of a slow economy, that'll keep things that'll get things going, keep things going, and it'll produce something. The problem is, Steve, as, as you and I well know, that a government dollar has to come from somewhere. So ultimately, either now through taxation or or when we pay off the debt later or through inflation by printing more money, the money that the government is pumping into the private sector is being pulled from the private sector. The difference is it's being pulled from the productive side of the private sector and all too often just, just transferred into, as transfer payments into, unfortunately, a very unproductive part. And when you, when you have consum consumption without production, you have 
destruction. Uh, wow. it, it, it seems it seems it should be intuitive, but mm-hmm. clearly, it, apparently, it's not. At least not in Washington. Well, if government, as you ask, if government intervention is ultimately a bad thing, why do so many economists advocate it? That's a great question. I, I it may, it, and you'd have to get to the economists. Not all of them do. There's a real division among economists. There's your there's your classical economists who would who would, I think, give you much more empirical evidence that 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 would not be the case and shouldn't be. But there are a lot who do, and you know you'd have to take them one at a time. The ones that come to mind have very strong, I got political connections. Um, when, when, when an economist, Nobel Prize winner, even when virtually every column the individual writes, uh, to, to a large extent defames a particular side of the political aisle, I think he just destroys his credibility when that happens. And and then you can look back throughout history to their own writings. A lot, a lot of times they conflict, and it doesn't mean we don't learn things as time goes on. But the idea that this whole aggregate demand. It really is consistent with one of history's most well-known economists, John Maynard Keynes, who emerged out of the Great Depression uh, with this idea that, you know, we, it's in the, in, the, in the contractions, in the recessionary phases, we need government to step up, as I said earlier, to make up that difference. But even Keynes suggested that when you know, let's let's even I, I, I can combat even that, but let's say that actually did have the, the desired effect, and it really did boost the economy back into growth mode. Then he said, but it's the booms where we need to cut back, not the busts. Well, the problem is that my observation is they never cut back. By the time, let's say, we get into a, net, a new expansion mode, either the existing politicians who were there during the contraction, there's just no way they are going to cut back. When you grow the size of government, you actually, you actually, or you at the same time grow its influence. I said in a recent blog post, get deficit spending is a terrible thing until some of it lands on your doorstep. What politician is ever going to be able to tell somebody, okay, we're going to no longer give you what we've been giving you, unless they want to kill their political career. So hence, right. what happens is, yeah, sure, okay, in concept, let's say we need to spend more. I disagree, but let's say you're right. You have to do the other thing, and that is cut back when times are good. Never happens. Mm-hmm. So it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah, and and I like what you said earlier. The question you asked about about Europe. Um, that's ultimately when you finally come to the end of the road, and now you know it's the, the term is austerity. Now I got to be honest. It drives me crazy when I hear an economist say, "Well, you see, austerity isn't working. Europe's not getting any better." And I, you know, you just want to scream. Austerity is not an economic strategy. Austerity, cutting back, is what happens when you've spent way beyond your means and borrowed to do it much longer than than than, than any reasonable other entity, other than a government, could ever get away with it. When you when you've reached the end of that road. It's all you have left is to shrink back the size of government. And, of course, it's going to be painful for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it's going to look you know, like it's hurting the economy because it's just for the moment people are hanging on to their money. They're actually saving and investing, which I could, again, if we had more time, I'd tell you why that ultimately is so much better for the economy in the long run. But, um, but this whole idea that austerity was some strategy to get the economies back on track is just ridiculous. It's just the ultimate consequence of irresponsibility. 
We've been listening to Martin Mazzora, and he has his new book, Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. Marty, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get it just about anywhere online, any bookseller. You can go to the publisher, iUniverse, iUniverse.com. It's sold on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and and I, I suspect just about any of the online booksellers. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure, Steve. I enjoyed it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leaders Open Doors, a radically simple approach to lift people, profits, and performance. And the author is Bill Treasurer, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Steve, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Great to have you with us. We're going to learn a lot about really a simple bottom line kind of approach for leaders, because as you put it, leadership is the most overanalyzed, thoroughly dissected, and utterly confused topic in business. I guess, you know, we just expect a lot of leaders, but we... As you point out, you'd almost have to be God to meet the expectation today. Indeed. I think that leadership experts, they've got good intentions, but I think at the end of the day, we've ended up confusing the idea of leadership. We've inflated the expectations as to what it means to be a leader. We've made the definition so nuanced that leaders that are in leadership position, first of all, lack a lot of confidence because they're never quite sure if they're being a good leader. But a lot of people even shy away from the opportunity to lead because it's such a daunting expectation that they have to live into to be a good leader. 
Well, before we get into some of the details of your new book, Leaders Open Doors, tell us about yourself, Bill, about your background, and then how this book all came about. I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer of a courage-building company called Giant Leap Consulting. We help people and organizations be more courageous. This is our 11th year in business. We were founded in 2002, and in that time, we've worked for hundreds of clients with thousands of executives on four continents in eight countries throughout the world. I'm very gratified to be able to do the courage-building work that we do. And this book came about because for the last 20 years, I've been dedicated to the study and research of leadership development. It's much of what my company does is deliver and design and develop leadership development programs. And one day, I had a conversation with my five-year-old son that cut through 20 years of all of that research and got to the heart of what leadership is really, really all about. And in that moment, it illuminated the idea to me that, you know what, I've been complexifying this idea of leadership too much for too long, and what my five-year-old son just said to me made all the difference. He had come home from uh, school as a preschooler, five years old, and he had gotten to be the class leader for the day. Now, remember, I had studied leadership for 20 years, and so here's this little five-year-old gets to be the class leader. Wow, I was kind of proud. I said, Ian, come here. I'm proud of you. You got to be the class leader. What would you get to do? And he looked at me with his big five-year-old eyes, all excited, head shaking, (laughs) yes. And he said, I got to open doors for people. And it just stuck with me. I was like, huh, wow. Ain't that the truth? Isn't that really what leadership should be all about? Leadership's not about the leader. It's about the people being led. It's not about having power over people. It's about applying power for the good of people. Opening doors of opportunities for others is really what open door leadership is about. And the way that I frame that in the book is six different doors of opportunity that people can open for the people that they lead. How did you boil it down to six? I suppose that there may be more, uh, but, you know, this book kind of was almost a gift to me. I've written two other books and and had to struggle through them, and it's kind of like wrestling with God. Uh, But this book was easy to write. It it came to me almost like a gift, and I, I didn't want to write any more than the gift was giving me. And it opened up six doors of opportunities that I think are simple, easy-to-apply lessons that any leader can uh, grab onto and apply in their own workplace, and they're not complex. They're not uh, difficult to implement or understand. So that's sort of how we landed on six doors of opportunity. And the very first door of opportunity is that leaders open doors to a proving ground. They give people a shot at proving something to themselves often enough. So leaders give us a chance to prove ourselves to them and to ourselves. Just think of any leader that has been instrumental in your own life, Steve, and I'm sure that it's somebody who gave you a shot when other people weren't giving you that shot. So that chapter explores the importance of giving people opportunities to prove themselves to themselves. And then the next door, thought-shifting door. The door to a thought-shift. A good leader helps us stop thinking in habitual ways. They get us to tap into our own imagination and creativity 
and they pivot our thinking so that we have new perspectives. You know, one of the great barriers and limitations to employee performance is that we do things the way we've always done them. And we start to box ourselves in with our perceptions and we start to think of what can't be done because we've never done it before. But a leader has a way of being able to lift our head out of the sand to see a broader horizon and they shift our thinking so we can think in, in different ways. I'll give you a quick example. I was working for a client in the southeast and they make paper plates and cups and napkins and such. You, you Believe me, you would know the name of the client. And yet their marketing staff was having a difficult time thinking of new ideas uh, in, to be able to inspire sales. The only thing that they could come up with was to offer more discounting. But the head of the organization knew that there had to be something more than discounting to be able to inspire sales. So instead of just sitting in a room around a blackboard trying to come up with new ideas, he took them all to a nice lunch in the local park, Piedmont Park in Atlanta, and they had they spread out a picnic area. So they had picnic tables, they had blankets on the ground, they had a grill, barbecue grill going with sizzling chicken and hamburgers and hot dogs and coleslaw. And there in the midst of all of it, the most important utensils of all were the paper plates and products that this company uh, sold, napkins and such. He first had to shift their thinking to bring out the recognition that we're more than just a commodity product. We're part of the essential human experience in people's backyard barbecues every single day. He had them have that actual picnic before they had their brainstorming lunch, and then they came up with many more inspired ideas mm. than they would have if they were <laughs> trying to eke out stale ideas in an old building somewhere. So it made all the difference right. just to pivot their thinking. Fantastic. Very creative. Now, everybody wants this next door. Most of us feel we never get are able to go through a door of second chance. Mm. It's funny how uh, judgmental we can all be when it comes to the mistakes that other people make. But then when we make mistakes ourselves, we sure do want forgiveness in a hurry. And a good leader, a sound leader, what I call an open door leader, recognizes that second chances can be essential to that person's growth, especially if we ever want them to risk again. Mistake making comes with any career. A quick story that I tell in the book there is that there was a, a 17 year old, actually a 16 year old kid that got caught hacking into the Air Force computer system. Now, meanwhile, they had been getting broken into these systems for a while and then they finally caught this kid and wisely, the special agent in charge of Air Force investigations said, all right, kid, here's the deal. You are going to go to jail for a very long time unless you help us break into the government computer systems using the skills you already have. We just want you to break in while we're watching. In other words, we're willing to forgive you in exchange for having it benefit us as well. Mm. And so it was a mutually beneficial forgiveness and by the way, that person 20 years since that moment when he was forgiven in the 80s had helped the government after that break into 200 government systems, most of which the government owners of those systems never revealed to the government that they had been broken into because they were too embarrassed. And this guy helped them break into those systems and thus make them more secure. Now he has a company with over 50 white hat hacking employees. Uh, I can't tell you where it is and I can't tell you the name of the company. 
but it just shows you the redemptive value when you take somebody at a moment in time when they've done something wrong, but if you can leverage it the right way, forgive them in the right way, you may turn that person into a productive tax-paying citizen like this guy is. And then there's the door that you say you just open for others. Sounds like just a general door. It may sound like it on the surface, but others is in quotations. The others in the, you know, a lot of leaders will hire people that are just like them, that think like them, frankly, that look like them, that are of the same socioeconomic background as them. A wise open door leader sometimes does the opposite. They go to the far off reaches of the company where the people are least like them. They try to connect with the people who are somewhat marginalized, but certainly different, the people who are what we would call others, people in the minority populations within whatever population that leader exists. So if you're working in a company full of young folks, but you got one person who's older than those young folks, then the leader will spend time getting to know that older person. Or if you're in a company that's full of women, then you would spend time making sure that you get to know the man in that organization or vice versa. More often than not is men leaders are promoting men leaders into leadership positions when we're not doing enough opening doors of women in the workforce. So the point of opening doors, that chapter uh, for others, is making sure that the leader is attending to the people who most need their leadership influence. And very often it's the person least like the leader themselves. And then that door to personal transformation, that sounds major. If you think about it, Steve, the leaders that have impacted your life, life the most, the people that you admire now in hindsight, are people who affected you more than just make you more productive as an employee. They're probably somebody who touched you deeply, that made you think about things in a different way, made you see yourself in a different way, and helped you find something about yourself that ultimately you now see as a strength. They helped you gain confidence. So a leader can sometimes be that catalyst at the right moment in your life that sets up the trajectory for the rest of your entire career. And they can cause a personal transformation in you. Sometimes it's the result of hard-hitting feedback that they give you at the right moment in time when nobody else has the courage to tell you, but they tell you, and it causes you to leave that conversation a changed person. However it is that the leader has a tremendous responsibility, it's a, pr a privilege to be able to lead because you may in fact affect a person's life for the course of their, their entire career after that encounter with that leader. And then finally, of course not least, but this final door, number six in your book, the door to your open heart. I think that it's important, you know, we'll give leaders a lot of leeway in terms of uh, letting leaders to be powerful. You know, leaders require volunteers. <laughs> leaders require people who will follow them in order to get things done. And people are not gonna be loyal to you if they think that you are too big for your britches, that your ego is too big, that it's all about you and the accumulation of power. People will follow leaders that they know however powerful they are, that they are connected and tethered to humility. So it's important that a leader, on occasion, make sure that they are revealing who they are beyond the nameplate that says leader on their desk, that they exist more than just the role that they're playing as a leader, 
that they're also a fellow human being who has made some mistakes along the way. It's the leader who is willing to reveal some of those pitfalls and shortcomings and mistakes that they've made who becomes much more authentic in the eyes of the followers and that deepens their loyalty to the leader and ultimately they'll charge the hill harder and faster when they feel that they're working somebody who, uh, for somebody who really truly cares about them. So a leader has to be revealed at least on occasion so that people can see the trueness and the fullness of the leader beyond just their role as leader. Well, you've received many reviews. Here's just one from the director of training from a major company. He says, Bill Treasure has broken new ground with Open Door Leadership. This exceptional book provides a simple yet authentic and powerful roadmap for leadership mastery. Well, Bill, give us a closing thought. Well, I just hope that uh, the listeners will consider, first of all, their own roles as a leader. Who are they influencing? Who's watching them? And are they showing up in the way that they are the leader that they want to be? The, a good question to ask is, why would anybody want to follow you? Are you a, f a leader worth following? And if you are, or if you're working for other leaders that you genuinely care about, consider getting a copy of Leaders Open Doors. Know this, that I am not making one penny from the book. 100% of the royalties of, from the book are being donated to programs that support children with special needs. You can learn all about it on the website, leadersopendoors.com, as well as view three different videos, including an animated video co-starring my six-year-old son about the book. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Steve, and I'm uh, delighted to be on your show, and I hope your listeners got something out of it. Well, Bill, tell us how to get your book. Where do we find it? Best way to find it, go to your favorite online retailer. Uh, we all know the big book chains online. and uh, Or go to leadersopendoors.com, and there's a way to buy the book through that website. We've been listening to Bill Treasurer. He is the author of this great book, Leaders Open Doors. Thank you so much, Bill, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.